Church, our uh, ushers are going to be bringing notes and pencils and Bibles around for you. If you don't have the scripture with you today, please raise your hand and we would love to give you the scripture so that you can be reading with us, so that you can have uh, God's holy and beautiful word before you there as we study through it together. We continue worshiping him as we open up the scripture and I just really want to encourage you as we were just worshiping just right now, I, I just struck by how important preaching has been to me through my life. I wasn't uh, raised in a home where the Lord's name was glorified and where God was preached to me and where the Bible was the basis for everything that we did. I came to the Lord because my grandparents loved the Lord and I saw a difference in them. And, and so uh, I'm very grateful for the upbringing that I have from my parents, my mom and my dad and my stepdad and my stepmom. They all did the best they could for me. But I was raised in large part by the pulpits of faithful men. Who I am today I have to thank Jim Meek and Larry Webb and Bruce Edwards and Anthony Holliday and the men that preached to me through his word and showed me the true things of who God is. Please don't come on Sunday mornings and just coast through this. Please listen to the word of God preached and take it to heart because God is forming us. He's shaping us into the men and women he desires for us to be. The men and women who can, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the truth of the word magnify his name in this world. So let us humble ourselves and let us thank the Lord God for what he trains us with in the scripture. Let us be attentive and let us not think that we've got it all figured out already, but let's come humbly to the throne of grace and let him pour his love into us through the pages of his scripture because he's making us new. Every time we hear this word preached, it affirms what we know to be good and it gives us greater confidence or it corrects what we think wrongly about God or it encourages us to love more like Christ loved. And so let's take a moment before we study and just let's just bow our heads and our hearts and thank him for, for raising us the way he designed to raise us through his scripture and through the preaching of the word. God, you are good and I, I'm just humbled to, to think where I would be without you, Lord God. What kind of a mess I would be if you were not my strong fortress and my mighty tower, if I had nowhere to run but the crumbling buildings of this world, the, the, the weak philosophies that men have invented for themselves, Lord, if that's all I had, how lost and wretched I would be, how full of anxiety, how unhappy, how unloving, Lord, how enslaved to sin I would be. And so I thank you, God, that through the word you've conquered and you've overcome and you want to do that again this morning. You want to do that every time the pages of your word are given reverence and honor. When we come before you and let your voice speak to us, Lord God, plainly. This is your gift to the church. So let us receive it, God, with a grateful heart. And let us cherish it. God, let us be so thankful for everything you have delivered to us today. And God, I just pray that you provide the humility. Uh, it doesn't even come from us, God. We need faith. Give it. We need humility. Please provide it. We need insight. Um, God, we're going to trust you to show us, to open our eyes and give us grace today. We love you and thank you and expect great things from your word today in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are uh, some very essential aspects of our faith that cannot be tampered with, that we cannot compromise. There are truths as Christians that, that God has delivered to us through the scripture. And these truths do not need to be added to 
They are not evolving over time. Uh, they are pillars of truth that define our theological understanding of who God is and how he has helped us through salvation. And they provide for us strength of mind and heart. And one such doctrine is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has been in our hearts and minds as Easter has recently been celebrated here and throughout the world. This doctrine is an absolutely fundamental truth that someone who trusts Christ will confess and will defend with a glad and happy heart. We believe that Jesus Christ came to earth by way of a virgin, Mary, that he was born into a fleshly body, that he grew and that he lived a life that was free from sin, was perfect in every way, and obedient to God the Father. We believe that he died on a cross, that he gave his life in payment for our sin to cancel out the debt that we owe to God because of our rebelliousness, our pride, because of our desire to be God when only God should be God. We testify to the truth that Jesus didn't just die, but that he is alive today because he rose from the grave, that he is seated on the throne of authority next to the Father at his right hand, and that one day he will return for his church to receive us for himself as a sanctified bride so that he might love us for eternity and bring us into his dwelling forever. And so that he might also judge those who refuse Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they might rightfully punish, be punished for their rebellion against the Lord God. To remove the resurrection from the basic confession that I just shared with you would be like removing one of the essential elements that makes salvation salvation. It would be like mixing chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, and Spam and then calling it ne Neapolitan. That's not Neapolitan, right? You take strawberry out, and it's not Neapolitan anymore. It's something, but it's not Neapolitan. If you take the resurrection out of the gospel, it's something, but it ceases to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a non-negotiable aspect of how the Lord God has saved His people and redeemed them and made them His. So let me just give you a few, few reasons why the resurrection is so vitally important. First of all, if Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, then he is then a false prophet. And by course of reason, he is also a liar. If the resurrection is not true, we believe it to be true. So of course we don't believe that Jesus is a liar. But if there was no resurrection, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we could not take him seriously. Because he himself has declared that he would do it. Luke chapter 18 verses 31 through 33 says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, that was the title used for himself about Jesus, everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Couldn't rise on the second day, couldn't rise on the fourth. It had to be the third day. He had to conquer death, or everything that Jesus ever taught has got to be questioned and loses its integrity and its power. If Jesus didn't rise, 
then he would be a liar. Secondly, if Jesus didn't rise, we would be pitied because we would still be dead in our sins. We would have every reason to be in despair today. Our desperation would be through the roof because the great hope and confidence we have is in Jesus Christ and in the work that he did on the cross, which paid the penalty of our sin so that we could be not enemies to God, but near to him as sons and daughters. If Jesus doesn't rise, he is not our Savior. He is not the one who has conquered our sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, a slave to your desires, to your earthly flesh. Of course, we don't believe that. We believe that He is risen, and we believe that we have been set free from those chains. But without the resurrection, there is no penalty. That substitutionary atonement by which Jesus said, my perfection will stand in place of your imperfection, would be canceled. And we would still owe the wage of sin to the Lord God. We would still owe Him death. Thirdly, thirdly if Jesus did not rise, if He did not conquer the grave, then that would mean that Jesus is still dead and is therefore not God. God, true God, is immortal. Death cannot cause him to cease from existence. The fact that Jesus died and rose again shows us that he is indeed rightfully called by that name, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Lord himself, God. And he is eternal. He will never die. He will never cease to exist. You take the resurrection out of that equation and Jesus is just a man. He's just a human being like me and you. Dead and gone. But that is not the case. Since the resurrection is so vitally important to the gospel, there is another question that needs to be answered this morning. What is the precise nature of this resurrection? And that's a, that's a tough question to answer in some ways because human beings have so little experience with resurrection. It's not something that we encounter on a regular basis. We're not familiar with resurrection. You've probably never witnessed a resurrection. I can pretty much guarantee it. We can't study it in a lab and, and examine it over time. While some who have medically died, of course, have been revived from their death, it's never happened the way that Jesus came back to life. No one has been dead clinically for three days and then suddenly <gasps> began to breathe again. That does not happen. So we are absolutely foreign to this concept of the resurrection. His rise from the grave is an event without precedence and it's an event that will likely never be replicated in the manner that Jesus displayed to us. So there is room for the mind of man to wonder about the details of this phenomenon. What is the nature of the resurrection? When it says that Jesus rose from the dead, what exactly does that mean? And questions have indeed risen in the minds of men, and many answers, some good and some very bad, have come from that wonder. Did Jesus get an entirely new body when he rose again? Or did his old, abused, and beaten body rise from the dead? Was his resurrection physical in the literal sense? Or was the resurrection spiritual in nature? Did he arise as a ghost? Was he some kind of a mystical being? Or does he still possess a 
a human nature like you and I do. Where is Jesus now that he has risen and is a physical creature, if that is the way that he has risen? These are a number of the questions that have been raised by people who want to understand this critical aspect of the gospel. These questions and their answers can have a profound impact on our faith as we try to follow after Christ. I was um, one time here at the church and I noticed someone driving in the parking lot down in the Somerset Apartments erratically. And as I examined, I walked out and I saw that the lady's door was open and she had a leash and there was a small dog being dragged out of this car. And I ran down to see what was happening and to try to try to remedy what was, what was going on. And the lady was completely disoriented. She, her car was wandering. It was a miracle she didn't hit somebody else's car as she kind of weaved through this parking lot. And I, I, I asked her if I could stop her, and I reached in and put the car in park. And after talking to her for a few moments, I could tell that she was on some serious drugs. There was, there was something wrong. And I was afraid that she was going to do something to hurt herself or to hurt somebody else. And so as she tried to explain to me that there was somebody she knew in the apartments and she needed to get in there and she had all these problems, she just was talking a mile a minute, I said, I think there might be something wrong with your car. Can I check it for you? I used to be a mechanic. And she said, yeah, yeah, the car needs fixing. I, I can't get to seem to drive it right. And so I popped the hood and I went under the car and I pulled the battery cable off and shoved it underneath. And I went back and I said, I can't figure out what's wrong, but there's something wrong with your car. And she said, well, thank you for trying. I just got to find help. I got to find help. And then I backed up, and one of the other residents had come out and saw what was happening. They started to call 911 and get some police out there to get this woman some help. By taking that one wire off the battery, what did I do? I disabled the whole machine. I did that on purpose because I didn't want this woman doing any harm to herself or to that dog or to anybody else in the neighborhood. And in some ways, theology is like that engine. If you take out a key component, if you undo one important wire, you can throw the whole thing off. You can disable the whole thing. And so today, the Lord is going to put our eyes and hearts on doctrine, on theology, because we need to understand that when you think wrongly about the things that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it can disable the way you have a relationship with the Lord God. It can, it can ruin your perception of who God truly is. This morning's sermon is not a, a cliffhanger. I'm not going to keep us all in suspense and then at the end reveal the true answer. Instead, I'm going to answer the question right up front. The question, is, of course, is what is the nature of the resurrection? And here's the answer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was physical. It was a literal, physical resurrection. Luke and the other gospel writers go to great lengths to ensure their readers that they won't misinterpret this event of Jesus' resurrection in such a way that it detracts from the bold truth of Jesus' bodily return. They don't want them to read this and then speculate. And so each one of the gospel writers has included important details of the events that point to the fact that this resurrection was physical and bodily. The passage God has prepared for us this morning illustrates in very plain terms this nature of the resurrection. And so we're going to read together verses 33 through 43 of chapter 24 of Luke, this last chapter of this gospel. We're talking, uh, before we begin, we're talking about two individuals. We studied last week how they were disciples of Jesus. One of them was named Cleopas. We don't know the other one's name. 
and they had traveled upon a road and had encountered the risen Jesus, although they did not know that at first. And so when it says they here in verse 33, it's talking about those two travelers. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So these two individuals that we spoke about last week have experienced a lot of interesting things within the course of the last few hours, haven't they? When they had left Jerusalem, we studied this last week, they headed back to Emmaus, which was probably their hometown, a seven-mile journey from the city of David, and they were, uh, were, were met there on the road by a fellow traveler whom they did not recognize at first. God had veiled their sight so that though Jesus was walking with them in the flesh, they couldn't tell that it was him. He wanted to teach them something from Scripture so that when he revealed that he had risen from the grave, they would better understand the resurrection. So as he's walking along the path, they express to him their doubts and all that has occurred, and they don't know what to make of Jesus' death. It seems like defeat to them. And Jesus rebukes their unbelief. He proves to them from the Old Testament Scripture that they should have faith in Jesus, that he was indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. They still don't know it's him. The travelers received that rebuke and correction. They were humble about it. In fact, they desired more fellowship with this stranger who spoke these true words. So they invite him in to stay with them. They break bread together. And as Jesus is breaking the bread, their eyes are unveiled. And they realize that this is Jesus, their Savior. That he is indeed alive. That he is physically before their very eyes. And then he disappears. Now you may recall from last week that in verse 29... Cleopas and his companion had asked Jesus to stay because Jesus was going to carry on down the road. He, he, he made it seem like he was going to continue on his journey. And they had argued to him and said, you know, it's too late for that. Nobody wants to travel when it's dark outside. So why don't you come in and rest and get some food? You can continue on your journey tomorrow. But when they break bread and they realize that this is Jesus, they throw that wisdom out the window. They're not about to sit and wait till daybreak. They turn immediately around. They go right back the seven-mile journey that they just came from Jerusalem. They return because they've got to tell their compatriots that they have seen the risen Christ. The two disciples immediately leave. And when they finally make that trip back to Jerusalem, it probably didn't take them too long because they were so excited. And they got back to Jerusalem. Before they could even get their testimony out, they're greeted with some news by the other disciples. The other disciples have something to say as well. And they're so excited, they, they shout out to Cleopas and whoever the second person was. They shout out in verse 34, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Now that's kind of a little mini mystery for us. We don't know when the Lord would appear to Simon. It's not made clear to us. That's not recorded in Scripture. Um, it is affirmed in 1 Corinthians 15.5. Paul also cites that Jesus appeared solo to, to Peter at some point. But the scripture has not uh, given us a full record of what had happened. But apparently Peter had come and said, I've seen Jesus with my own eyes. He is risen, and they believed him. So these people um, were, were now starting to, to grab hold of this, this hope that Jesus was indeed alive. Notice that use of the emphatic word indeed. In the Greek, that, that means that they are surely believing now. It's only repeated one other place in the book of Luke. The centurion said, surely this is a man of righteousness, right? When he saw him crucified on the cross, he made, he said, indeed, this is a righteous man who was just crucified, a man who was innocent, free of guilt. So this, this is a pretty strong word for them uh, to use to affirm that this must mean Jesus has ridden. There's no doubt in their minds now. They're convinced Jesus is alive. So the travelers back up that testimony. They say, well, we've got some news too. We walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And at first we didn't realize it was him. Somehow God blinded us to that fact, but then he opened our eyes and we could see that it was really our Savior. We ate a meal together and then he left. He disappeared. And while they're sitting there swapping stories as their excitement is building and they are regaining that hope that had, they had almost lost entirely after the death of Jesus, he appears to them. Just as he had disappeared in the breaking of bread to those two in Emmaus, now he appears again in Jerusalem amidst these disciples who have gathered together and are exalted in hope that Jesus is alive. <coughs> when they see him, they react with disbelief again. They cannot believe their eyes. They are startled, and the first thing that they uh, do is they think that this is a spirit. They don't think it's the real physical Jesus. And so you see the seesaw battle that's going on in their hearts. They believe that he's risen. They don't believe that he's risen. They believe that he's risen. They think he's a spirit. This can't be the physical body of Jesus. They are human beings. So let's give them some room to be human beings here. They don't know what they're dealing with. And it's hard for them to process this and, and to keep up with the great changes that are happening, happening before their eyes. They are marveling again at the fact that Jesus has somehow appeared to them before their very own eyes. The resurrection is such a unique and unlikely thing that our human intellect struggles to embrace it. Perhaps that is why so many people who consider the gospel and even desire to accept the gospel of Jesus have been held up by their struggle to accept the doctrine of the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the earliest heresies, a heresy is a, a teaching that goes against truth, one of the earliest heresies that threatened the integrity of the gospel was a position called docetism. Docetism. You probably um, heard of it maybe at some point in time. I, you know, it, it's probably not some, some thought that you think about very often if you have heard of it. Um, error often begets error, and there is usually a domino effect when somebody starts thinking wrong in one way. So docetism didn't start as docetism. It actually started with another type of error that we, uh, we often call Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is a system of belief. It's like a philosophy that infected other philosophies. And it wasn't fully developed in the time of the, uh, the earliest uh, records of the church, but it was beginning to take root in uh, the Roman Empire. 
Gnosticism has two fundamental beliefs about matter. First of all, Gnostics believed that the spirit is intrinsically good, that there is something spiritual about every human being, and that the spiritual aspects of us are righteous and well-meaning and loving. But they believe in contrast to the spirit that the physical world and every material thing in it, by association, our very human bodies are intrinsically bad. So Gnostics believe the spirit is good, the body is bad, and that's why you wage this little war in your heart. Every time a, a, a temptation comes up, your body wants to do the bad thing, your spirit wants to do the good thing, and so you're being pulled in two different directions. And the Gnostics taught that there was secret, hidden knowledge, that if you sought for it, and, and if God revealed it to you, you could, you could understand these deeper truths on a level that normal people could not understand them. So in this unbiblical duality began to seep into Christianity. It caused all sorts of problems in the church. If you allow yourself to be influenced by such a philosophy, it would be very difficult to hold to the true gospel as it is preached in Scripture, as it was taught by the apostles. Here's the Gnostic dilemma. If all things physical are wicked, then Jesus could not be perfectly good because he possessed a physical body. So those who, you know, bought into Gnosticism and kind of thought of everything as physical bad, spiritual good, when they heard about Jesus and they heard that he came to redeem and they heard that he was the keeper of this great knowledge and that he came to pay the penalty for sin and to set us free from it, they loved that concept, but they had a real hard time believing that he had a real physical body. Because if his body was physical, that means that he wasn't purely righteous. They believed the body to be wicked and corrupt. That's the Gnostic dilemma. And this is how all heresy comes to be. When we allow ourselves to trust the thoughts of men more than we trust the gospel as it was presented to us by the Lord, as it was re recorded and revealed by the apostles, and we trade the truth for a lie, and we make ourselves terribly vulnerable to the workings of the enemy who ever desires to deceive our hearts. So docetism was born in an attempt to reconcile worldly dualism with biblical truth. Gnostics can now be Christians if they believe that Jesus came and he took on some kind of an image of God, but not really a physical body. We first hear about docetism in a letter dated to 197 A.D. So this happened about 100 years after the church is really forming and solidifying. And it happened in a church, or it happened, rather was identified in a letter from a bishop who was um, serving God in Antioch. This bishop had identified a, a scripture that people were teaching as true. He identified it as a false scripture. It was called the Gospel of Peter, which you don't have in your scripture because it, it's not real. It contained heresies. Somebody had written it to propagate their ideas and then put the name of Peter on it to try to lend credence to it. It was a forgery, a fake. And so this bishop in Antioch identifies this, gives a name to the doctrines that were taught in that, uh, that, that uh, gospel that were false. He calls it docetism. Uh, this gospel claimed uh, that Jesus came not in a physical body, but in a spiritual body. Docetism comes from a Greek word, dokesis, which means an illusion, a phantom. 
something that seems to be real but has no real substance. So docetism claimed that Jesus did not possess a true human body. He only appeared as a man but was in all ways divine, was undefiled by the physical wickedness that you and I are afflicted by. Now this heresy threatens to undermine many important truths regarding our Savior. So we're going to go through a few of those together today. First of all, how is Jesus able to relate to us as the book of Hebrews boasts that he does if he has not experienced life as we have experienced? We are pleasured today to worship a God who is not some far away, disconnected, detached being that cannot relate to our station in life, that cannot understand us, but is something way far beyond us, and we just worship Him remotely. That's not how we come to worship today. We come to worship a God who knows us. Not only does He know of us, but He has literally lived in a human body as we have lived. We are connected by experience to the Lord God through Jesus. Hebrews 4, 4 verses 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a great comfort it is to know that the Savior we serve understands us. He, he identifies with us. We are not a mystery to him. He has walked a mile in our shoes. He's walked a whole life in our shoes. But if Jesus only appeared as a man, if he spent his time here on earth as some sort of spectral projection, some hologram or some ghost, then he did not experience true humanity as we have experienced, and he could not lay claim to these words in Hebrews 4 that he can minister to us as one who has walked in our shoes, who can identify with our experience. That would be a false statement. It would almost be like a teenager walking up to an army veteran and saying, hey man, I totally can relate to your post-traumatic stress syndrome. I know how it feels because I have played so many hours of Call of Duty on my Xbox. That's insulting, isn't it? I mean, that's ridiculous. You cannot compare what you can virtually experience on a video game to what you go through in real life. Jesus was not some spectrum. He was not some ghost. He was God in the flesh. He lived like a man. He slept. He grew tired. He got sick at times. He had to learn and grow in posture and stature. He was authentically human. At the very same time, he was authentically God. But we must not downgrade the human nature of Jesus to fit some worldly philosophy that claims, these claims are not backed up in Scripture either, claims that the material world is wicked. When God created the heavens and the earth, what did he call that material creation? He called it good. When God created man in a human physical form, he said it was very good. So we cannot let this human philosophy infect and downgrade our understanding of who Jesus really was. Secondly, the wages of sin is what? Death. If Jesus did not truly live in a material form, 
Jesus did not truly die. And if Jesus did not truly die, then our debt was not actually paid, was it? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that God the Father would remove the responsibility of going to the cross from him if it were at all possible. If man could be redeemed any other way, the Son petitioned to the Lord that this cup would pass from him. Now, if he was just a ghost or a hologram, why would he be worried about going to the cross? Why would he be worried about the lashes he would receive and the nails through his hands, the crown of thorns? Why would he be worried about sin somehow theoretically being placed on him? It makes no sense. Jesus was so anxious about this that he sweat blood because he did not want to be polluted by sin. And so we see here in the garden the evidence that Jesus intended to pay that price Physically, the Father made it clear to him that there was no other way. And so Jesus, in obedience to the Father, said, Then thy will be done, not my own will. I will do, Lord God, what you call me to do. But if Jesus wasn't really even a physical man, that nullifies his death. It makes his suffering a charade. It renders the resurrection completely inconsequential. Because if he was not physical, and he did not really die. So why would he rise again? By the way, most of the Hebrews at this time believed that the spirit was immortal. There were some exceptions. The Sadducees did not believe in immortal spirits. They believed that people died and just were dead. They were gone. But the vast majority of those who followed after the Lord God believed that the soul somehow soldiered on into an eternal form. The theologies of heaven were not fully developed yet, and so a lot of people just thought it's, it's the grave. We don't know what it is. It's unknown. But they believed that the spirit lived on. So why would the Hebrews invent some spiritual resurrection if the spirit can't die? If the spirit can't die, why would the spirit be resurrected? It makes no sense that they would invent this philosophy of a spiritual resurrection. Thirdly, scriptural's, or scripture's integrity rather is tossed out of the window if Jesus did not possess a physical body and a true human nature. If you're going to argue that Jesus did not come and take on physical flesh then you have just undermined a huge portion of the scripture that we rely on to know God and to obey Him and to worship Him rightly. The promises that contain, are contained in the Word of God are empty if Jesus promises to raise from the grave bodily and yet never even live bodily in the first place. The historical validity of the Bible is null and void if we have all these scriptures that speak of his physical existence, of him breaking bread, of him walking upon water, of him healing the sick by putting his hand upon them, of him spitting it to clay and rubbing it in his hands and putting it physically on the eyes of those who are blind and seeing them healed entirely. How much of that history must be thrown into the garbage if Jesus was nothing more than an image or a specter? The door then is flung wide open for those who want to symbolize Whatever verses in the Bible are inconvenient for them. They don't want to be literal about the things. And so now if we can just say, well, that wasn't, you know, when Jesus walked on water and when he, when he reached out and he, you know, healed people, he didn't really touch them. If you want to spiritualize things and make everything an allegory, then you could do a lot of damage to the word of God and to the truth that is contained therein. So the integrity of scripture is tossed out of the window if we don't hold firmly to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every heresy attempts to remove an essential ingredient from the perfect 
recipe that God has provided for us. And in doing so, they threaten to spoil perfection. They threaten to pull the battery cable off so that the whole machine is rendered inoperative. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why are we sitting here spending an hour talking about a heresy that 1,800 years ago was a problem in the church, but you don't see docetism preached on the street corners these days. You don't see congregations whose identity as Christians are, are based on this false idea that Jesus rose spiritually. But in reality, there is still a threat to those who are interested in Christ, who desire to know Christ, because there are people who still teach some degree of docetism in their theologies. The Jehovah's Witness Church teaches that Jesus did not raise from the dead physically. They teach that Jesus rose from the dead spiritually. Now, they concede that he lived physically on earth, but they say that his resurrection was not bodily, that it was done in a spiritual manner, that when he came back to earth, he appeared to be real. He showed himself in different images, but that the different interactions that he had were just to show that he still lived in a spiritual sense. They were not to prove that his physical body was alive again. That, that doctrine also helps in some other areas of error that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. They have several times predicted the second coming of Jesus would happen on a certain day. They made a big deal about when he would come and when he would return to take his people up with him. And then when that day came and went and there was no parting of the heavens, there was no voice from the skies, there was no declaration that God had come to judge, they explained it by saying, oh, he came, he just came spiritually. Just like he came after you know, the third day, he rose spiritually, and he came the second time spiritually. And so they've, they've tried to cover their errors by saying that this isn't a physical thing, this is a spiritual thing, and so you just have to kind of close your good eye and squint and just believe that it happened. Those who ascribe to Islam hold to a, a type of docetism in their understanding of Jesus. Islam acknowledges Jesus as a historical person and claims that he was an exemplary man of God, a prophet. Nonetheless, Islam adopts a form of docetic belief by refusing to accept that one of God's prophets would be allowed to suffer as Jesus did. They are a, a a, a philosophy, a way of thinking, a religion that puts high value on power. And so to think of God's prophet Jesus as being humiliated and whipped and spit upon would be to them a defeat for Allah, their God. And so they teach that Jesus did not actually suffer, that he only appeared to suffer and appeared to be crucified. But in reality, their surahs teach that he was taken up to heaven without actually having to die, much in the same way that Elijah did. Again, they're trying to pull the cord off of, or the, 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 uh, the power wire off of true Christian doctrine. So we have to prepare ourselves, church, to do battle for the truth of the gospel. For the enemy wages a war of deception over the minds of men. The greatest defense against this docetism that infected the early church was the straightforward testimony of Scripture itself. I don't need to get up here and spin some, some wild, uh, creative, intellectual arguments to defend the idea that Jesus rose bodily. All we need to do is go back to the historical record that is contained in Scripture. Here in the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus shows himself to his followers, but he knows that they're still struggling to grasp what they are seeing with their eyes. So he, 
he offers them a critical assurance. Again, in verse 38 of Luke 24, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Not only does this assurance calm the disciples, it also exposes heresies like docetism and what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach and what Islam holds to. Jesus' first words to the disciples asks them, Why are you troubled? Man is troubled because he's confused and has limited understanding. Jesus is not trying to find the answer to this question. He already knows the answer. He's trying to draw it out of them so that they will consider why they are so anxious. Why do we struggle with believing this? He wants them to ask this question of their own hearts for their benefit, not for his own discovery. And so as they ponder this, he gives them, he gives them the answer. The weakness of our minds is remedied by trusting in the perfect mind of the Lord God. Whenever we struggle in faith, whenever we find ourselves wondering and, and falling short of truly trusting the Lord, the answer to that is to remember that God is in all ways greater than us that he is sovereign on the throne, that he never doubts what is going on, that nothing is a mystery to him. And when we come to him trusting him as a father, as a child trusts his father, and we allow him to lead us in childlike faith, then the confidence that we lack is provided by his goodness. At this, he presents them with the very thing their finite minds long for, the physical evidence that he is in fact real and not a phantom, not an image, not a hologram, not a spirit. Jesus shows them the holes in his hands. These are the holes that he earned as he went to the cross for us and was nailed to that cross beam and lifted up into the air. He shows them the hole that is in his side. This wound that is somehow healed but still very clearly there that was given to him by the soldiers who wanted to prove that he had indeed died lest they break his legs to hasten his death. Now we might ask ourselves, is this a new body? Is this a different body, a replacement body that God has given to Jesus? No, it is the body in which he suffered. We see marks from the suffering still lingering on. It bears the evidence of his earthly experience. If this were a completely new body, then what happened to the old body? Right? The old body that suffered and died, the old body rose. It's not there anymore. Where is it? Jesus is using it now. It has become glorified. It has been made spiritually new, but it is still the physical body that he had before his death. So it's not exactly the same because obviously he's alive. He is walking. He is breathing. It is glorified and it possesses new qualities. We don't know the extent to what Jesus is capable of now that he is glorified, but we have seen some evidence that he's more than just a man limited by the, the laws of nature, haven't we? As those Emmaus Road travelers ate their bread and they realized that it was Jesus, what happened? He vanished from their sight. As they stood in this room and shared stories about the evidence that they had collected, indicating that perhaps Jesus was again alive, he appeared right before their eyes. So this is a physical body that has some spiritual, supernatural power that is different than the bodies that we possess. But it is undeniably physical. And I love how specific Jesus is in the way that he describes himself to these stunned followers. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. How detailed is he getting here? 
He's making it extremely clear that what his resurrection means is that his body is again alive and breathing. It emphasizes that physical nature of the resurrection. It seems as though Jesus almost knew that docetism was going to be a problem and that he headed off that heresy at the past, doesn't it? And of course, that's the truth because Jesus, being God in the flesh, knows all things. Your God knows exactly what you need. When the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy said that Scripture is sufficient, that in all ways it makes it possible for us to be properly equipped as his followers, he wasn't fooling around. The Scripture is all we need to battle any heresy that comes against this church. The Lord does not have to send us down an amendment or some special addendum to the Scripture because everything we need to protect against these kinds of vain philosophies is given to us in the pages of Scripture. To conclude his appearance, Jesus asks them a question. He asks his disciples if they have any food. Now this may seem like a trivial thing, but notice that we have several examples of Jesus in his resurrected form eating food with his followers. Have you noticed that? He broke bread with the Emmaus travelers, didn't he? He's sitting down to have a meal with them. Food's involved. Here he eats a piece of broiled fish in front of the disciples to prove to them that he is real and that he's interacting with the material world. In John's gospel, Jesus had breakfast by the sea with the disciples who had been on a, a fishing trip and he revealed himself to them. He's sitting there cooking the fish and eating the fish with them. Jesus, by doing what a spirit would never need to do, emphatically refutes the heresy of docetism before man can even form docetism in his corrupt mind. He is ahead of the game. Let me challenge you as we conclude this morning, my friends, that when we begin to have sermons like this and we preach about words that you're not familiar with, docetism and Gnosticism, and we speak of things like this, don't tune out. Don't just say, I'll get back to him when he's talking about the stuff I'm familiar with. Don't let yourself disengage when the sermons that are preached to you begin to handle more of the difficult details of theology or apologetics. If that's not in your wheelhouse, it might take you a little bit extra work. You might have to take your notes home and look them over again. You might have to pray through some of these things and really dwell on them, meditate on them before they become clear to you. But don't neglect that opportunity. We cannot fall into this dangerous mindset that there are scriptures that are practical in nature and then there's scriptures that are doctrinal in nature. And I'm more of a practical person, so I'm just going to pay attention when the practical stuff comes up. And when the doctrinal stuff comes up, I'll leave that to the brains of the, of the congregation. I'll, you know, I'm just the hands of the body. I'll let the brains talk about doctrine. Friends, we need good doctrine. Good doctrine defends our hearts from the truth. It helps us to glory in the true Jesus who is so mighty and beautiful and good. You might think that there are ordained pastors who are set apart for the task of thinking carefully through these kinds of things and that convincing others that they are so is a responsibility that falls to people more qualified than yourselves. You might find thinking of God in such detail tedious and unappealing. In some ways, to look at the Lord through such a theological microscope might even make you think that it's taken away from the free and easy relationship of love that you hope to have with God. If that is so, brothers and sisters, let me challenge you to stop 
and consider that rightly understanding the character and the nature of the one who saved your soul from hell and transformed your life from slave of sin to child of the Most High God, that should be one of the greatest blessings of your life. To know Him and to understand Him better and then to share that great love that you have found with others should give you exceeding joy. To call God by His real names. To correct another person's misconception of what God is like, of what God desires of what God has accomplished, these are noble and worthwhile tasks that have the potential to yield spiritual fruit in our lives that can last in eternity. Don't forget the words of James, chapter 5, where Brother James is addressing the church. He says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. To stop someone from wandering down the path of heresy and deceit is nothing short of heroism. It's a mighty expression of love and concern for another human being. I would venture to say it is one of the highest expressions of love you can give to someone else. When you see them being deceived by the enemy and you help them to see the truth of God in the light of his gospel, you are doing them one of the greatest services you could possibly render to them. Do not underestimate also our power to deceive ourselves. By learning these things and training ourselves to think rightly about God, we prevent ourselves from falling into heresies. Our heart is exceedingly sick and deceitful above all things. We can easily fall into heresies without even knowing we're doing it. Some new popular guy writes a book or some preacher that we listen to on the radio pulls us in a direction that the scripture doesn't necessarily want us to go. We might not even see it's happening unless our hearts have been tuned to care about right doctrine unless we're listening to the true counsel of Scripture again and again and again. So we protect others with right doctrine. We protect our own hearts from straying from the Lord. Friends, you don't know what fleshly desire will one day rise up in you that may need to be subdued with the true Word of God. Heresies don't come from nowhere, friends. They come from the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Who wants to believe that he is better and he is, than he really is? Who wants to believe that he can be God? Man believes that. That is our nature. And we must battle that nature. And we battle that nature with the truth by drawing the things that are wrong into the light so we can see them as deceit. This God that, that we serve is perfect and all-knowing and all-powerful and possesses the authority to judge and to correct. So to drift into false ways of thinking about this God can put us at odds with him can make us in conflict with the God that we are supposed to love. And this God tells us that life and death are in His hands. So let us commit ourselves wholeheartedly, church, to understanding Him in true and accurate ways so that we do not end up worshiping some man-made God who only vaguely resembles the God of truth. So please, don't, don't disengage just because the terms that I use today are not already familiar to your vocabulary, please don't pull yourself back or or drift off and leave these important responsibilities to the seminary trained. Friends, all of life is seminary. 
Every one of us is engaged in the process of learning more about our God and drawing near to Him. There is no aspect of your life which the knowledge of and love for God does not apply to. We're going to sing here in a second a song that, that Christians have sung for generations. And there's a, a verse in this song that says, I once was blind, and now I see. And I want you to think about the protective way that your God overcomes heresy through the truth for you. That he takes the Holy Spirit that is within you and uses that Holy Spirit. If you are attentive, if you are simply humble enough to receive his correction, to put you on right paths and to secure your footing so you will not stumble and you will not fall. This is a great love from our God. So learn from him. Let us unlearn the wrong concepts that might have, we might have held about our God. Let us train our hearts to understand the ways others twist his identity so that we might discern and argue boldly for the truth and for better understandings that God may be known in truth and loved and worshipped for who he truly is. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for the mighty power of your great word. And Father, I know uh, as I come to preach it that I could not even illuminate it properly if it wasn't for your help and your work in and through me. I pray, Lord God, that you would use this preaching to bless even my own soul, Lord, that we would take more seriously the right command of Scripture. Father, that as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, that we would understand better who you are and what you desire for your church. Pray, God, that we would be on high alert to those who would tickle our ears and teach us things that might appeal to our desires and our flesh, that we would reject those false teaching, God, and instead embrace the wonderful reality of grace. It is good to know, Lord, that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation, but that you give it freely. It is good to know, Lord God, that you came and took on flesh so that you might dwell with us and know us and relate to us. It is good to know, Lord God, that by faith we can trust in you and receive that grace and have our debt paid in full. I pray, Lord God, that you'd be working that salvation in the lives of any who are lost here today. I pray that for those of us who know you, God, and are called by your name, that we would repent if we have been taking lightly the issues of doctrine that are brought up today, that we would not just desire to have a very basic and rudimentary understanding of your faith, but that we would love the pure milk of the word and then graduate to eating meat and and to improving our diet of truth and scripture. Father, you provide all that we need, and so thank you for the word. We love you, and uh, we are grateful for the time we'll get to spend together with you this week as we seek you individually in our quiet times, as we seek you in reading the scripture and prayer. I pray, Father, that you would use it all to strengthen your bride and sanctify us for your return. Let us be near to you and near to one another as we await that day. In Jesus' name, amen.